0: I've always found myself like going against the grain just existing as a gay man in Singapore for 20 odd years. Much of my young adult life has been in spaces where my sexual identity was frowned upon, outright rejected, etc. MDMA to me represented something that was inherently queer. It has such stigmatized life in the united states that it became natural that i would gravitate toward mdma as an option for healing from some of these minority stress processes that i've been going through in the early part of my life
1: welcome to voices of esalen i'm sam stern our guest today is terence ching a us-based chinese singaporean currently completing his phd in clinical psychology at the university of connecticut Terence has assumed a co-therapist role in a MAPS-sponsored trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. He infused the research process with culturally informed recruitment and assessment procedures. Terence is working on his doctoral dissertation with an emphasis on examining possible differences in efficacy of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD between white participants and participants of color across MAPS-sponsored study sites. Together, we spoke about intersectionality, diversity with regards to identity, and how psychedelics can change conditions previously thought of as intractable, such as obsessive compulsive disorder. Before we get into all that, do you want to know more about sacred plant medicine and psilocybin? If you're interested, I encourage you to register for Esalen's upcoming series with EntheoWheel. Learn everything you want to know as Esalen presents DNA Journeys EntheoWheel the Ceremony and Science of Psilocybin. This educational and experiential event will be live streamed from Esalen from April 23rd to April 26th, 2021. The online odyssey will be guided by Jyoti Ma, Sochil Ash, Paul Stamets and Pam Criscow, East Forest, Milana Snow, Justin Bereda, Alan Bediner, Dream Mulek, James Fadiman, Robin Carhart-Harris, Grace O. Rada Wapner, and a digital transmission from Francois Bourzat. So secure your place for this online experience now with the link in our show notes or go to esalen.org visit. Also, scholarships for BIPOC folks who want to attend are available. Just use the link in our show notes to apply. Now, here's Terence Ching. I think we're going to talk about maps during this interview, and I was hoping that you could just
0: uh, define what it is and their place within the field of of psychedelics. So MAPS is uh, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, and it's chaired and headed by Rick Doblin and has in recent years grown to many more hundreds of employees. And their main mission, really the main Research agenda is on the use of MDMA as a a way to augment psychotherapy for PTSD. So MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD is your main research program at this point in time. If you go onto their website, you'll see that they have in progress or completed many other uh, indicated uses of MDMA therapy or MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for, for example, social anxiety and uh, folks with autism. Uh, There's some optioning of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for uh, disordered eating patterns in people with PTSD as well. So there is a growing list, uh, but PTSD is the main target problem for them. And you know, I'm not entirely privy to the, uh, the, the intricacies that go into their research agenda, but I think it does seem like the idea is to submit uh, to FDA for approval MDMA-assisted psychotherapy uh, in the next two to five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... There are many exciting findings related to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy that are widely publicized, as we well know. And yeah, I'm honored to have been a tiny part of a large movement um, in this growing and shifting uh, cultural consciousness about the use of psychedelics for healing.
1: Terrence, would you be available to define the term intersectionality and, and talk about why it's uh, important with regards to psychedelic psychotherapy?
0: Mm-hmm. And my, my experience, academically speaking, uh, with intersectionality has been inspired by the work of Crenshaw. Um, so this was largely in the context of law. So the idea that systems of oppression are created on the basis of perceived differences in identities. So this top-down idea that Black is bad and white is good. That straight is good, queer is bad. And that in itself creates like systems of oppression for folks who hold many marginalized identities. Um, when I think of intersectionality, I think of, you know, what exists in the overlap in the liminal spaces is the experience of a queer black person or a queer Asian person simply the accumulation of the experiences of a queer person and the experiences of a black person. And that I don't think is necessarily the case. It's not that simple or or additive in nature. I think there are many nuances to existing within the threads of your identity, and I really appreciate when, I, when, you, when we talk about intersectionality, the, the metaphor that if you pull on, like the fabric of your existence is many threads together, so if you pull on one thread, the entire fabric moves. So it has like, you know, you're not just talking about sexuality. You're talking about sexuality as like a Chinese Singaporean living in a conservative environment with his parents. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm, I'm thinking when I, I, I say intersectionality. That's very helpful. Thank you.
1: Now, what brought you to psychedelic psychotherapy in, in the first place? I'm, I'm curious if you could talk about some influence from your mentor, Monica Williams.
0: I usually tell people that it's something that dropped onto my lap. You know, I had not heard of MAPS. I had not heard of MDMA therapy before she kind of reached out to me and recruited me to be part of the Yukon team for the MP16 trial. So I think it was much of the same level of skepticism that she may have had when she was initially approached by MAPS. We kind of pride ourselves to be scientists, so we had we needed like you know scientific information and evidence for for this approach, and and the findings were very you know pleasantly surprising, uh, very successful outcomes in a limited sample of folks who have received MDMA therapy. And yeah, I always say it's it's I guess it's kismet, and it's a little bit of a coincidence. So at that point in time, in my own like research, I've always been looking for uh, innovative ways to approach the treatment of mental health. Where I come from in Singapore, mental illness is very much stigmatized. I lived with a family member with mental illness, and it was really hard to like see them struggle with mental illness and understand that they kind of function and operate in in an environment that wasn't really that open to talking about mental illness. Early on in my research, I really looked at self-help approaches for, for addressing you know mental illness. What can we do for people who have mental illness that doesn't involve them speaking with someone face to-face? So self-help approaches was really the bulk of my early research. and then MDMA therapy seemed to be like the other end of the spectrum. like it's really an involved process. But it's like bringing uh, a sense of hope for people who have struggled for a very long time with mental illness. So in, in its very essence, too, it, it represented something that was against the grain, a little cultural, a little like innovative. And, and that's what I really appreciated about the research itself as well. Um, and I guess that's why I gravitated toward it. And that and because it was dropped in my lap. So that's the long story for how I got started with this research.
1: Now, you you kind of bring this lens of questioning to the the MDMA therapy trials. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Monica Williams, too, brings that lens of questioning. And, And the questioning specifically is around whether the studies have been too geared or not. Let's see, I was going to say too geared to white participants, but maybe a better way to phrase it is not geared enough to a diverse set of participants. Is it coincidence that Dr. Williams um, kind of tapped you to be involved in this study? Had she known, too, that you might bring the, the same lens of questioning?
0: I, I think that definitely seems to be the case. We, when we're doing like health equity work, we always are acutely aware of our own blind spots. So whatever I'm going to like share later on in this interview is necessarily only representative of my perspective and what I'm able to see. And definitely if you interview with someone else who is involved in the intersection of diversity and psychedelics, um, they might bring something new to the table as well. But based on my perspective, yeah, like certainly all of these Studies have been geared primarily toward non-Hispanic white samples. In, all, in the six phase two studies that MAPS conducted, there were only approximately, I think, 12 people uh, who were people of color out of a little north of 100 participants in the six phase two studies. There are many reasons for why that may be the case. You know, it's a convenient sample. Um, people were recruited uh, based on a first-come, best-served basis. Um, They may have been recruited in predominantly white areas. The advertising methods used to recruit them may have worked better with folks who didn't carry any level or any strong level of stigma towards the participation in these studies. We've come to understand the war on drugs has built like a historical layer of stigma against the use of psychedelics for healing among communities of color. So, you know, there are many different reasons for why those samples ended up being, like, almost 90% white. And we were interested to find in finding out if MBMA therapy works just as well for people of color to start. Of course, there are many, like, diversity-related questions one could ask, like, does it work just as well for queer folks? Does it work just as well for differently able folks who struggle with chronic physical and mental illnesses.
1: Let me interject
0: yeah. a question here, if that's okay. Why
1: would MDMA-assisted psychotherapy not work as well for people of
0: color or for queer communities or differently abled folks? Mm-hmm. The idea, I guess, is that, you know, when you Get down to the ground and see where these trials are being held. They're being held in um, medical institutions that may or may not, you know, convey a sense of imposition. You know, it, it's kind of like you know, you go into the hospital, you see this all-white medical staff in uh, doctor coats, code, lab coats, and all that. You know it it activates some stereotypes about what your experience might be like and are they going to experiment on me? And then, you know, now that, you know, these stereotypes are activated and these stereotypes are are actually based in reality too. Like there is an unfortunate history of abuse of patients of color in medical settings. Uh, the Tuskegee syphilis, uh, experiment, um, You know, I did one year of grad school in Kentucky and I didn't know that, you know, Kentucky actually had the public service hospitals had a history of abusing prisoners or or drug offenders of color uh, in psychedelic research. There were anecdotes of how like a continuous like 77 doses of LSD were administered to black drug offenders and, you know, how people, uh, drug offenders were recruited into these studies And were paid with like narcotics that seem to like only feed their habit, so to speak. So, so like obviously, when you know you hear about these things happening, it's understandable why people of color may have some reservations about that, you know. And also, like I I mentioned, queer people too, because the psychedelic protocol has traditionally always had like a staunch different gender aspect to it like you have a co-therapeutic setting and one needs to be the male one needs to be female i guess the tradition is that you know so that when transference occurs like you know you can see the father and the mother and, and that dynamic could be used for a therapeutic purpose but you know when you talk about like queer folks right like or, or, or people who have been raised by same-gender parents, uh, people who don't feel safe in heteronormative spaces, would that, t- would that different gender pairing actually be counterproductive to deeper psychedel- psychedelic exploration? So I bring that all up to say, you know, there may be some inherent heteronormativity um, about the psychedelic protocol that might not seem as attuned to the needs of diverse populations.
1: How about your experience when you took part in the in the clinical trials because you identify as a as a queer man, cisgender man, if I'm not Mm -hmm. mistaken, from your Mm -hmm. talk for at Mm -hmm. Chakruna from Singapore. I don't know Mm -hmm. if this plays into this idea of of intersectionality. What was your experience with your uh, needs being met within the psychedelic space during these clinical trials?
0: I think the resistance wasn't necessarily <laughs> there for me. I've I've always found myself like going against the grain, you know, just existing as a a a, a gay man in Singapore for like twenty odd years. Of, you know, much of my young adult life has been in spaces where my sexual identity was frowned upon, outright rejected, etc. So MDMA to me represented something that was inherently queer, right? It, it, it has such, you know, a stigmatized life in the United States that it became natural that I would gravitate toward uh, MDMA as an option for healing from some of these minority stress processes that I've been going through um, in the early part of my life. So I, I it didn't need, I, I did not need much convincing to to see how it could work for some of these identity-related stressors. Mm -hmm. But it really helped for me to have, like, a wonderful experience with Bruce and Marcella uh, down in Boulder, Colorado, uh, for the MT1 study. And I think I conveyed just as much to them, you know? Like, they seemed to understand set and setting really well. They seemed to know what the right questions were to ask of me. Um... I felt like I was held in a very nice space with them where, you know, like everything I had volunteered to share with them was met with, you know, unconditional regard um, and empathy. And in this case, I guess, you know, there is some level of, there is some value to having like a different gender therapist, you know, in my uh, experience growing up, my sexual identity was always the point of contention with my parents. So to have, you know, like positive regard with Bruce and Marcella in this therapeutic space was mm. a very corrective experience for me. Mm. So that in itself was already setting me up for a wonderful like set and setting uh, for my dosing experience with MDMA. Mm. 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 So, so, so yeah, you know, that and the fact that, you know, MDMA seemed like a natural option for me because it, it was inherently queer, I'm queer, you know, it's, it's very synchronous in that sense. Mm. So yeah, I, I guess, you know, all things, the, the, all parts of the picture seem to click together leading up to my dosing experience. And yeah, you know, I can imagine how that might be different for folks who, you know, don't necessarily respond well to a male-female therapist pair who might have a lot more concerns about the physical effects of mdma for example or any other psychedelic medicine um, who don't know a lot about it decide what their parents have told them about drugs like don't take it if you take it you're gonna die you're gonna you're gonna get addicted etc and those are the same concerns that i hear a lot you know when you know i've in my coat in my study therapist role for the mp16 trial a lot of the participants of color that we've recruited uh, particularly the older participants they were super concerned about like the physical side effects of mdma is it going to leave a hole in my head am i going to get addicted after this how many times am i getting mdma again oh are you going to prescribe it to me after i end the study do i have to take this every day you know stuff like that a lot of these misconceptions that we had to. Uh, clear up during the informed consent process. Yeah, let's talk about that study. I'm
1: so curious. I have a bunch of questions. I guess the first one is about PTSD in general. So you're working on this MDMA-assisted trial for people of color who suffer from PTSD. I I think a lot of times we've thought about PTSD with these clinical trials being related to being a veteran and, and things like that. Is there an idea that PTSD for persons of color is incurred simply by the fact of being a person of color within a predominantly
0: white society? I think the idea, the, um, the, uh, the conception of PTSD or, or a criterion A event is that, you know, war, trauma, uh, physical assault, sexual assault, natural or man-made disaster, or medical trauma, et cetera. And then, you know, when if you're using the CAPS-5, you get to the end of the checklist of traumatic events, and you see, oh, this other category, right? (laughs) That in itself connotes, you know, like, we are only interested in 1 to 12 types of traumatic events that we commonly see. And we've since come to understand that race-based stress and trauma can be it can be thought of conventionally as a chronic course of trauma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about the idea that stress can build up over time, there must be a breaking point somewhere over time. And you where know, stress
1: becomes trauma.
0: Yeah. So like, you know, the more stress you carry with you as you go about your day living as a person of color, as a, a person of a minoritized group in the mm-hmm. United States. There should there may come a point in time where you, you know that threshold is reached from when another stressful event becomes traumatic, whether you know that be racially motivated or not, you know, like you know obviously it's easy to think of racially motivated violence. But if you're thinking about like racial microaggressions, which are kind of small, subtle, everyday chronic experiences of discrimination, little ambiguous events that can be um, construed and thought of as microaggressive. Uh, and then from the perspective of the perpetuator can be easily dismissed because it's ambiguous, right? Like, oh, I didn't mean that. I didn't you know when I touched your head, I wanted touched your hair, I really wanted to like convey that I really care about you not to like see you as an object. It's something yeah. that's different or so, so all of these Stressors can build up over time. Can
1: I can I ask and you from your perspective?
0: Porn. From from your perspective, let's say for example,
1: growing up queer in 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 Singapore, do you feel that you incurred some of the um, aspects of PTSD from this, or that it, that, or even in a more generalized way, do you feel that receiving therapy that's designed to to help people with PTSD could be could have been helpful for you?
0: I. You know, I want to also say that while, you know, folks of minoritized groups suffer from chronic experiences of microaggressions or discrimination at the same time, they essentially come from strong people and they have significant sources of support and resilience. So the resilience can build over time as well. So we don't want to perpetuate like a deficits model of you know, the, the minority experience. So for me, I would say that, yeah, certainly I don't have growing up gay in Singapore, you know, I've been bullied throughout my like high school years for being gay and for uh, attempting to conceal that part of my identity and being unsuccessful at that. And, you know, people always like making fun of me for being gay. I will say that Some of the symptoms that may be construed as part of the PTSD syndrome is, you know, like certainly back then I had some pretty inaccurate beliefs about how my life as a gay person is going to be. You know, I certainly had some pretty pessimistic thoughts about, you know, being able to find a partner, etc. So I would say that while, you know, there are a lot of stressful experiences that come with being part of the minority, there can be opportunities for growth and for uh, community building and resilience to occur as well.
2: Mm -hmm. So yeah,
0: back to your question. Yeah. There are certainly some symptoms that can be conventionally thought of as PTSD symptoms. When you think back about the stressful experiences I've I've experienced.
1: So just in terms of, of creating this trial and, how do you get diverse communities to participate in this trial is, is like, can you talk about re- recruitment strategies that you utilized?
0: I really want to credit Sarah Reed for leading the charge at our site in terms of the recruitment. She served not only as a study therapist, but also stepped up to become the study coordinator, which was a super rare thing to have happened. Um, I imagine that the other MP16 sites in the United States had distinct roles for staff members on the study team. So kudos to her for you know, taking up the study coordinator role. And in that role, I think she really led the charge in being able to talk to like, community activists in the Hartford area of Connecticut, uh, understanding you know certainly we want to be inclusive. We want to prioritize recruiting people of color but that is not like a monolithic group right like there are many like diverse subgroups within communities of color and you know upon consultation with that community activists we were given the sense that it might be easier to recruit from younger people of color as opposed to older people of color who would immediately shun any discussion of taking MDMA for for the treatment of PTSD And it's easy to understand why, right? Because the war on drugs disproportionately affects people of color, especially older people of color. And younger people of color emerge in a time when, you know, while the war on drugs is still happening, they're also exposed to much more social media and, and like, news outlets advertising or, or talking about the potential psychedelics for healing. So they do have more access to this growing social consciousness that psychedelics can have like healing properties as well. So that's part of the reason why we sought to like, reach out to younger people of color in our study. And to do that, we, you know, decided to advertise the study on campus, we decided to create a flyer that had our faces printed on it, because we still understand that, you know, if you throw about like a flyer with just words on it, People are going to look at MDMA, PTSD. They're going to say, like, probably hell no. Like, what are you doing? This is crazy. But when you see, like, you have study staff who are actually people looking like the people they want to recruit, Mm. there's, you know, a sense of immediate, like, slight sense of trust in this process. Okay, like, it's not all just white doctors who are doing this research, experimenting with people of color again oh, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, they look like me. I, I feel like I can trust them. So we, we're we doing everything we can to signal to the communities that we want to recruit from that we're here for them. In the flyer, also, we advertised um, the fact that, you know, racial trauma can lead to PTSD as well. Yeah. Microaggressions, racially motivated violence, and the like can be thought of as events that can lead to PTSD. So already we're explicitly communicating that, yeah.
1: What about the therapist teams who treat uh, diverse communities within the the psychedelic trials? Is there an, an effort to put in therapists who are also people of color,
0: or is that sort of not necessary? I think more and more so there is a growing consensus that we need therapists who look like the diverse communities that we hope to reach. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to put a plug in for just last summer, uh, in 2019 maps held its first therapist of color training. So it was the, uh, the basic therapist training program that maps provides. And on top of that, you know, we were recruited into the process of how to shape this into a more like culturally sensitive and attuned one. How, how do we, ensure that the training model is infused with like some of these things that I'm already talking to you about. And what we realized in that space is that the therapists of color that we kind of accepted and enrolled in the training program are already teachers. (laughs) So like the student teacher role, the, the student teacher divide isn't exactly clear. Sometimes the lines and very often the lines are blurring. So it felt more of a communal learning experience than a hierarchical one, where you have wonderful like, instructors from maps just you know walking us through the basic protocol and what it takes to hold space for a dosing session. but also like, a more like intuitive exchange of ideas. Oh, how about we do things this way? How about we look at the things this way? And, and yeah, it's special because it it, it raises the question uh, of whether we need to continue to reinvent how psychedelic therapy is done. Does the MAPS protocol translate to like community-based work mm. when you go down to uh, the level of the community where you know like folks of color? What do they do when they want help and they are looking for help? What, you know, do they respond to? Maybe it isn't like a traditional psychotherapy clinic. Maybe it's like group healing. Maybe it's like group integration circles where it's exclusively uh, a people of color, a safe space for people of color. So, you know, it's exciting times. It's it's, It's a time where we begin to do things Uh, a little imperfectly, uh, (laughs) realize what our blunders are, and not get too defensive and try to recover from it. What I'm offering is only from my limited perspective. And I, you know, if anything, I would encourage people to take from this moment that, you know, there is a lot of wisdom in communities of color. uh, And they know best how their people heal best from trauma? Mm-hmm. And how can we respect those traditions and kind of integrate the two? I think it's really exciting,
1: the, the, the work that you're doing. I want to ask too, what about the cost? Like cost of the trials for diverse populations, or not to mention the cost of therapy for folks that are not involved in, in the clinical trials? Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about cost with, with regards to the, the work that you're doing?
0: So the, the cost, so usually the, the I would say the MAPS protocol was originally uh, designed to be housed within a private practice setting. So when you think private practice, usually think out of pocket. As part of my internship right now, like part of the clinical work I do is out of a private practice. So even as an unlicensed professional, such as myself, who is licensed by a licensed psychologist, People pay $150 to see me per hour. So when you think about, oh, then you rise up to the level of licensure and you see a licensed psychologist. Oh, actually, like, you need two people for a dosing session and for them to carry you through the entire protocol. Oh, there's actually three preparatory sessions before the eight-hour dosing session. And then after each dosing session, there's, like, two to three integration sessions that are an, an hour and a half each. And then you just times... All of that times three, you you can imagine like number man hours involved in this pr- process, mm. and then you times two, right? Because there's two therapists involved. And so is you're all this probably, going to be coming out of pocket? It, I, you know, I am not privy to any of the the logistics mm-hmm. that it involved in the running of a psychedelic practice. Uh, I've only been you know, part of a clinical trial. But what I do know is that it can go upwards of a couple tens of, or maybe like $30,000 or, you know, like the the number, again, I'm not up to date about all of that, but it is a lot of money. And then you think about like, oh, well, who can afford this treatment? People who can take time off work, people who have savings, (laughs) Mm -hmm. people who have a partner who can support them. And then you think about the target problem here, PTSD, right? Whom does PTSD affect disproportionately? Mm. Obviously, when you're thinking about PTSD, you thinking about stress and trauma. There is an association with the extent of marginalization that you experience as a person in the United States. So the, the, the gap kind of widens. The people who are able to afford this versus the people who suffer a lot I wouldn't say it's, it's not uh, like a trauma Olympics or anything, but it's kind of like the people who are suffering a lot and who can also benefit from this treatment, um, you know, they're not being, they're not able to access this treatment because of how much it costs. That said, I think there are many wonderful organizations out there who are actively, you know, conscious about this, they recognize this to be a growing problem, especially with the commercialization of psychedelic therapy and or psychedelic substances, to be specific. They're um, they, they are thinking about ways to like create scholarships for underserved mm-hmm. communities. Uh, and I think that is something that we should pay more attention to how can we, you know, create like a sliding scale enterprise where underserved communities can still access these psychedelic uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. approaches for healing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk to me for a second about the, the work of Brian Anderson who, who conducted a psilocybin assisted psychotherapy study that targeted demoralization amongst long-term survivors of the HIV AIDS epidemic.
0: I'm just like immediately struck by how inclusive, like the, the first word that comes to my mind is inclusive. And when you think about like a clinical trial, right? Like the traditional clinical trial has like a laundry list of exclusion criteria. So you cannot be suicidal. You cannot have substance use uh, disorders. You cannot have a personality disorder. You cannot have bipolar. You cannot have psychosis, Mm. meet any of that. And you're not eligible to participate Um, in that study. I'm not aware of the specifics and I don't recall any of the specifics, but the sense that I got was that the, the the list of exclusion criteria was very much shortened. And that to me, you know, scientific design aside really speaks to the heart of the study, right? Like you're doing this in the heart of the the San Francisco community of long-term AIDS survivors. Um, You understand that, you know, after surviving the AIDS epidemic, that that necessarily entails, you know, it's respecting what people had to do to survive the epidemic.
2: Mm.
0: Obviously, people, some people are gonna to turn to drugs, some people are gonna develop personality disorders, some people are gonna have some pretty impulsive risk-taking behaviors, and they do that either to, to cope with the difficult internal experiences that they're, they're experiencing because of the AIDS epidemic, that they're losing people left and right, that they love. It's you know, it's 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 so respectful of the 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 lived experiences of these people that they're hoping to recruit. So <laughs> you can you can only imagine if they stuck to a traditional list of exclusion criteria, they mm. would still be recruiting people <laughs> today. They wouldn't be able to complete the study because no one is eligible to participate. So that to me has like a lot, I I have a lot of respect for the work of that team Mm -hmm. in being able to run a study like that, understanding the risks that they are taking on and being able to have people with a lot of comorbidities join a study where they are like in a group setting, very vulnerable, Mm -hmm. right? And to be able to hold space for that, that's like really impressive and hats off to them for being able to complete that study. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And it's published in the Lancet. So like, you know, that's where it rightfully should be, you know, there should be a lot of attention paid to like this kind, this model of clinical trial.
1: So with all the work that you've put in, including your, your, your dissertation and whatnot, what would you like to see within an equitable MDMA assisted psychotherapy clinical trial that would be that would feel like it's equitable for for all communities?
0: I I would like, first of all, first and foremost, for any uh, expansion work to be led by science. And in order for the science to take place, we need more equitable recruitment of diverse populations. If anything, you know, like a lot of this work is being funded by private organizations that aren't necessarily holding the investigators to the same standards as federally funded trials, right? When we think about when people submit uh, applications for grant funding, private organizations may have a specific agenda, while federal organizations, federal funders have they operate within the framework where, okay, we want to see X percentage of diversity in your clinical trial, and you need to be able to write that into your grant proposal, and you need to be able to deliver that. So I, what I would like is for you know, private organizations to start exerting some pressure on grant applications to reflect the same level of like, intent about uh, diversity in recruitment. I say that, you know, that's, that's not all there is uh, to be done about it. You know, if you recruit people of color into these trials and you have like, say, for example, like an all white staff and there isn't an emphasis on culturally attuned psychedelic therapy, for example, you could do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So I would love for there also to be diversification of study staff. So diversify, diversify everything, make sure it's equitable, you know, like make sure that we have enough sample size to conduct the analyses that we need to then say MDMA therapy works just as well for people of color, queer folks, differently able folks, et cetera, than folks who are non-Hispanic, white, cisgender, male, able-bodied, et cetera. Right, right. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's a start. And, and I, I, am a scientist at my heart. I think I want the science to reflect that before we make any decisions about, you know, uh, how to expand this uh, treatment into the private sphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, let me ask you this. What do you think the future of your work within this field holds? What are some issues that you're going to be concentrating on over the next, say, five years?
0: In my dissertation, I found from... So this was a database that MAPS had very kindly granted to me to work on, and it was using data from the open-label trial, the MP16 and 17 trials that were held in the United States as well as in Canada. I would say there, there was an intentional focus on diversifying at least the participant pool. In my analyses, I essentially found that it seemed to work just as well as for the participants of color and the white participants. So I think, you know, that's not surprising because other clinical trials who have kind of recruited more people of color into PTSD treatment studies have shown that when they manage to keep the people of color in their trials, they do respond just as well to the treatment as their white counterparts. So, I think my focus now really is shifting a little bit into how do we get these people into these studies and one of my questions that i'm I'm kind of looking at right now is to see if the way in which we deliver information about psychedelic therapy matters does it matter you know like I mentioned just now, a lot of the people of color that we screened for our MP16 study really asked about the physical side effects. So does it matter that, you know, would they be more willing to participate if we kind of emphasize a lot of the facts, a lot of the uh, side effects, and make sure that they were crystal clear about what they could anticipate going into their first dosing session? Does it matter that, you know, the way in which we deliver psychoeducation about this trial has like a testimonial feel to it, like it, it stirs up your emotions? Does it matter that uh, people would rather look at graphs than hear people speak at them or talk at them for an hour at a time? So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how different modes of communicating information about psychedelic therapy Uh, may impact people's willingness to participate in this research.
1: Terrence, I I saw in your bio that you have some interest in the use of psychedelic psychotherapy to assist for people who are suffering from obsessive-compulsive disorder. And just wondering if you could speak a little bit about that.
0: I think I'm, I'm very inspired by the work of Carolyn Rodriguez, who is currently at Stanford University, So in her work with ketamine, the idea is that it sets up neurochemical changes in the brain uh, after a single dosing of ketamine that makes individuals who have OCD enter a, a very suitable Cognitive slash psychological slash neurochemical state for exposure and response prevention, which is currently considered the gold standard psychological treatment for OCD. Mm. So the idea is that ketamine puts you into a like there is a golden window of opportunity for intervention for you to take to the psychological treatment for OCD. And in my own work, I'm I'm very interested in trying to see how I can marry my training in evidence-based therapies with my growing interest in psychedelics. So at this point in time, I'm kind of really curious about the use of psilocybin for augmenting response to exposure and response prevention for OCD. If anything, I think that's like the grand goal for me moving forward in the five to 10 year range. I do hope that, you know, I will be part of a research team that is looking at how to integrate, you know, psilocybin dosing sessions with exposure and response prevention therapy for OCD. It sounds like a
1: really worthy goal. Had you had uh, personal experience with folks who are suffering from OCD in in your life?
0: Yeah. Like I mentioned, um, I, I do have a family member who have, who has OCD. Uh, And that was the same family member that I mentioned at another time um, who, you know, you know, living in Singapore with mental illness, folks with OCD are or any other like form of mental illness really are kind of equated to folks who have schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So like the idea of mental illness really is psychosis for many people in Singapore. Um, So, yeah, living with someone who has OCD and understanding how, like, oftentimes the the often cited amount of time that it takes for someone who has OCD to eventually seek treatment is seven years. Mm. And that's a really long time to wait. You know, intervention could have, you know, nipped the issue in the bud very early on. But if it gets to the seven year mark, you're really like setting into very unhelpful ways of behaving and thinking. Mm-hmm. That could, you know, make it very hard for you to respond to traditional psychotherapy. Mm. So, yeah, the idea is that you know this could be adding to the list of available treatments. Maybe like not first line, not front line treatments, but maybe like later down the road. You know, in the stat care model, if intensive outpatient care doesn't work, then maybe people could consider psilocybin assisted. Exposure and response prevention for OCD There's something so exciting about Psychedelic therapies
1: and that it it feels like to me as somebody who's kind of an outsider in the field that these therapies Can help touch change and access Disorders that have previously been treatment resistant in certain ways like the rates of people quitting smoking for example um, OCD as you say eating disorders treatment-resistant depression. What are, your, what are your thoughts around why psychedelics can do this?
0: First of all, like, I like to, I think the, there is like a shifting idea that treatment-resistant in itself kind of connotes some, like <laughs> the, even psychedelics wouldn't work for you. So I think now there is like a shifting consensus on the use of uh, difficult to treat or yeah. like chronic conditions. But I, I I think, you know, there are many, as yet, like, yet to be examined uh, mechanisms for why psychedelics work. Personally, based on what I've reviewed and what I've looked at and researched, I think it really does set you up. And, and you know, before I get into that, the, the idea that there are separate mechanisms of action to me, like, I, I don't believe in that. I think it's all just part of the same fabric you know your things are happening at the neurochemical level at the spiritual level at the psychological level and the cognitive level at the somatic level and they're all happening at the same time so because psychedelics can catalyze such an urgent and significant shift in all of these levels of change i think it does set you up for a wonderful like opportunity to receive what tends to work for people who may have less uh, difficult to treat version of that same target problem you're hoping to get some help for so I, i guess you know like psychedelics gives you the boost that you know think about volleyball like you're getting like that um psychedelics is you setting up that spike and the treatment is the spike itself ah i like that that's a cool metaphor I think you've been very uh, comprehensive with your your questions. And and I think, if anything, I, I want to encourage us to think a little more diversely about diversity. Oftentimes, when we're saying diversity, we immediately, like, it's synonymous with race and ethnicity. So when we bring intersectionality into the mix, you know that there is, like much more in the liminal spaces than the conventional categories that people like to think of. Uh, it's not yes or and no or either or, or it's kind of like everything at the same time for a lot of people with diverse identities. And yeah, like I always, you know, I encourage people to always be curious and humble about what they don't know to always seek the wisdom of people who are different than you to always suspend any stereotypical beliefs you may have about a particular group and yeah and and encourage people to to advocate for more fiercely and, and continue to be very fierce about advocating for diversity in psychedelic work whether it be clinical practice or research i think you know we are so interdependent on each other i think the idea is you know we can 't do it alone, and if we come together, whenever any one of us gets tired, another person can step up and just let let's keep the momentum going
1: i'm just thinking as i 'm listening to you this whole time about diversity with regards to identity and thinking about my own experiences within the psychedelic context of getting into this realm of Almost an identityless person, mm. and I think, in in a certain way, maybe that's has been easier for me because I belong to the normative sector of the U.S. society, being like white male, cisgender, hetero, normative, mm-hmm. whatever. It is there a a place within the context of being inside of the psychedelic experience, right? that is beyond identity for anyone or uh or is this somewhat of an impossibility um, for folks who live their lives as part of an an othered
0: Mm -hmm. population i think that is such a complex and dynamic question i'm immediately like you know it it sounds like you've identified that there are some privileges that you have existing in your skin as you uh, exist in psychedelic spaces. Um, And necessarily that, that perspective would change, you know, if you, if you imagine yourself as a person with another set of identities.
2: Mm.
0: And I don't have a clear answer to that. And I think what comes to my mind when you, Uh, mentioned your question was, you know, when you enter this, like, sense of boundlessness, like sense of identitylessness, during a dosing session, and you emerge from it, like, who's there to receive you? I think a common concern is like, can you support this? Can, Can you, when I emerge from my dosing session, can you, are you prepared to hold the trauma that I just unleashed in this room, how what will you do? so it's it's very dynamic, and I think it's really dependent on how the psychedelic space is set up and who's in that space. Mm-hmm. the 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 swirling array of identities that is in that space. So I, I think you know it's it's nice to feel like you're all one and all love in during your dosing session. But when you emerge, does that translate does does that make sense does is how is that received uh do you need to put the mask up do you need to put the wall up again um or is it or if it's sufficiently you know uh held in the space afterwards can you continue to let that wall down what are the risks involved in letting that wall down Mm
2: -hmm.
0: (laughs) what about people who are not in that same space with you so I think I don't have a clear answer to that. And I think, you know, it really depends on what happens after, for one. Uh, I think we can start thinking along those lines. What do we re-enter into? Terence Ching, thank you so
1: much for, for joining us today on The Psychedelic Moment. I've really benefited from your perspective.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Peter Kobabe, Terry Gilby, and Michelle McCrary. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contribution.